Amen. I love that song, Mighty to Save, and I want to now share with you, read, read you a story. Now, where's my Bible? Did somebody steal it? Nick, did you steal my Bible? Are you sure you didn't think it was yours because you have a green one too? There's a Bible thief. There's a Bible thief. No, I put it back in my backpack, which is usually the answer to all things. It's like, no, you were just being stupid. <laughs> That's usually it. But let's, let's turn our eyes to the Lord and just pray. Lord, I thank you that you are mighty to save. Lord, I thank you for this story that you are about to show us how you save in a mighty way. Lord, open our hearts. Lord, there are ways in which uh, we as believers even need to be saved from certain things. That we need you to rescue us from certain bondages and afflictions. And we need to be reminded once again today that the only way for that to happen is to fall at your feet and say, Jesus, have mercy on me. So Lord, I pray that what we walk away with today would be a deeper confidence in your desire for us to fall at your feet and to receive mercy. Amen. The reading uh, from the gospel this morning is Mark chapter 5. It says, They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons of his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. This is God's word. This, um, I love this story, and I, I, I preached on deliverance several weeks ago, and so I'm not going to preach specifically on, on deliverance from demons, but this story is actually a beautiful picture of the gospel and how the gospel changes lives. And so I want to just really dig into um, the depths of the gospel as it's displayed in the story. Now, let me point out something to you. Before this passage, this was the passage when we met two weeks ago, was from Mark 
4, the passage before this, and it said this in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. It said, that day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. So that was then when the storm happened, and I preached on that about fear. But so what was, what's going on today is, is on the other side. So they've arrived at the other side. And I just want to point out a little detail there is that Jesus wasn't thinking, hey, let's just go over there and kind of like see what happens. Jesus knew that someone was in need of rescue over there. And so he, what we see here in chapter 5 today is the outcome of a Savior who is compelled by love to go to people who are so desperate and in bondage that they could only be rescued by someone other than themselves. Now, the region of the Gerasenes that Mark describes, it's on the southeastern shore of the Lake of Galilee. So that from your perspective, they went from up here and they went southeast to the other side of the shore. And now up here, they were in Jewish territory, no problem, no questions asked. They go over here, now they're in Gentile territory. So for Jews to go there was actually forbidden. It was, would make them ritually unclean to enter into non-Jewish territory. So the, the, the little, uh, little thing that's implied there is that Jesus will overlook those kinds of ritual rules and ceremonial rules to go into the darkest places to reach the most lost people. And that's what we're going to see happen in this story today, and it's a picture of the gospel. So this man, as you could tell from my reading, is he's, it's an extreme case. It's an extreme case of spiritual bondage and demonization, and we don't get any backstory on how this all happened. Now, his is a, is a, is a, a very uh, severe case, but the point is that this is somebody, it's a picture of somebody who can't help himself. He, he is unable to help himself. And in that is, is a picture of all of us apart from Christ in bondage to our sin. We cannot help ourselves. We cannot save ourselves through self-improvement or through enlightenment or through trying to be a better person. We are really in bondage apart from the rescuing work of Christ. Amen? And that's the point that I really just, you're going to hear me hammering home today because I think it's the point that the passage makes. But there's two things about this. Um, he's often referred to as the Gerasen demoniac, the man plagued by a legion of demons. But there's two things about his state of being that I think say something about what life apart from Jesus is like before somebody knows Jesus and walks in relationship with him. The first thing is that he's unrestrained. They cannot restrain him. They put these fetters on his feet. He lives among the tombs in this very uh, morbid, macabre area, and he breaks his chains with superhuman strength. And I think that that's a picture of sin and self-rule in the, in the heart of somebody who doesn't know Jesus. Um, Paul writes this in Ephesians 2. He's talking to Christians about who they were before they came to know the Lord, and he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, then he says, we were gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. So essentially, to paraphrase that, you were enslaved to your sinful desires. You were in bondage to them, and you couldn't even do anything to restrain your sinful appetites and cravings. Okay, you can look out at the world and see that apart from Christ, that is the state of humanity. I want what I want, and I'm going to get it no matter what I have to do because the flesh will be fed, the sinful nature will be fed. That's a picture of bondage. Now, when we talk about sin, we often think uh, pride, lust, greed, anger. We think of lists, sexual immorality. We think of all these lists. But sin, I want to give you like a, a helpful definition from, that comes from someone else. And this author says, sin is, is an, an organic network. He says it's like a complex it's an organic network of compulsive attitudes, 
beliefs and behavior deeply rooted in our alienation from God. That's a beautiful definition, a very helpful definition of sin. Compulsive attitudes, beliefs, and behavior that's deeply rooted in our alienation from God, in our separation from God. And this, this man's unrestrained is like a metaphorical picture of that. Number two, the second thing about him that's a picture of, of unbelievers apart from Christ is that he's tormented. Now, his, his, his torment is extreme. He has to cut himself. He probably is hearing the voices of these demons, and he's, he's unrestrainable. He's mentally insane. But there's actually a kind of inner torment apart from life with God that I think every person experiences. We might call it like an inner or quiet despair. In fact, um, the 19th century poet and naturalist Henry David Thoreau um, described it like this. Now, this is a person who's not even coming from a Christian perspective, but he said this. I think this really gets at the human condition, this torment. He says, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. A stereotyped but unconscious despair is concealed even under what are called the games and amusements of mankind. So he says there's this inner despair in people, this torment that we try to bury under amusement and pleasure and entertainment that is inescapable for the human condition. And that is that void, that inner despair that, that, that people have. I, I don't know about you, but I can see this. I can sense this in people. Like when I'm in public, like I can sense that. I can see it in people's eyes, this lostness, this desperation, this sense of like this look of like inner loneliness and like I have no real meaning or direction in life. I'm kind of just going about my life day to day trying to survive on fleeting pleasures or work or whatever it is. I, I am so sensitive to that inner despair. St. Augustine famously said this, he prayed this, O Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Okay? And that's the condition of humanity apart from Christ. Restlessness. Restlessness. So here's this, the, the, the thing that we see in this picture of bondage in this man. It's a predicament shared by every human being apart from Christ. Okay? It's a predicament, it's a tension in every human soul. And that is that on the one hand, I want to run my own life without restraints, but on the other hand, I am also desperately empty, wanting connection with true love and peace. And these are conflicting things in people's hearts. Okay? There's, there's, one of them is a drive that leads people away from God. It's that self-rule and an unrestrained sin. And the other one is actually a longing for God. And those two things conflict. And this is where the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to meet us in our, in our personal spiritual graveyards. One author says this, Christ was sent not to mend wounded people or wake sleepy people or advise confused people or inspire bored people or spur on lazy people or educate ignorant people, but to raise dead people. That is what Christ came to do. Because we cannot rescue ourselves from death. We cannot rescue ourselves from spiritual death. And this man was in bondage to spiritual, mental anguish, to spiritual death. Now, so that was a picture of the bondage. Let's look at the encounter. 
It says, then when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. So notice this about the man. He is drawn to Jesus. He knows he has to run to him, but there's a force in him resisting Jesus that says, hey, don't torture us, son of God. I know who you are, holy one of God. Don't torture us. What do you want with us? I beg you, don't torture us. That's the conflict in the human heart. We're afraid to come before God because we know our own inner demons, if you will, sometimes literal, but sometimes just the manifestation of sin and flesh in us doesn't want to have to encounter God because that means those bondages are going to be, be broken and we're going to have to walk away from our sin. But there's also that part of us that knows that we need to run to Jesus. And this man runs to Jesus. You know, Jesus, when they were, when they were getting ready to go over to the other side, Jesus He's taking them into this forbidden territory. He's taking them to be sent out into the world. He doesn't say, you know, Jesus' approach, he wasn't like, hey guys, let's build a Christian bunker and sing worship and praise songs for the end, until the end of history because the world's getting really secular. Let's kind of hunker down, you know, vote and hope that our, the politicians take care of everything and then let's just kind of hide out in our bunker and, you know, get off the grid. Because I hear a lot of Christians talking like that these days. I just want to get off the grid. We, things are going kind of haywire. We need to get off the grid and just have a community of worship. I'm like, hey, having a, communi a community of worship is great, but you can't get off the grid and remove yourself from society and see lost souls saved. And we, need, we are sent into the midst of the darkness um, to, to preach the truth of the gospel. And Jesus did that for this one individual. He crossed a, a lake, a sea practically, to go over and rescue him. And this man runs to Jesus in his bondage, and Jesus sees and he knows intimately all of our bondage. Even those of us who are followers of Jesus already and are still wrestling with brokenness and bondage in our lives, Jesus knows it all intimately. And rather than flee from us and show repulsion, he walks right up to us in all of his radiant love and in his power to rescue us, and he gives us a way out of our bondage and our affliction our sickness, our spiritual death. But I love this description of this man. It says, when he saw Jesus, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. Friends, that and that alone is the way that we approach Jesus for salvation. This man didn't go up to Jesus and say, could you recommend a book for me because I need to improve my behavior? Could you recommend a psychiatrist for me because I have some serious mental illness, if you can't tell by all the scars on my hands from cutting myself. He doesn't ask for a plan. Or he doesn't ask for a three-step program. He runs to Jesus and falls at his feet. And that is a picture of what it looks like to come to Jesus for salvation. I want to I give us like a word of caution, and it's a, 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 a beware of misunderstandings about what it means to be a Christian, because they are widespread, and they're widespread not only in the world, but in the church, okay? And let me give you a few examples. What we might call the gospel of emotional well-being, and that is, I must be a Christian because I, it's making me feel better emotionally, right? There's some improvement in my life. Christianity makes me feel better, therefore I must be a real Christian. Or there's the gospel of personal fulfillment, which is Christianity gives me personal satisfaction, so I must be a Christian. Or there's the gospel of church going, <laughs> okay? We want, church going is good, but there's a gospel of church going that says, I'm going to church, so I must be a Christian. And then there's like a gospel of self-improvement, which says, I'm a Christian because Christianity is helping me become a better person. None of that really means that you are a Christian, okay? 
Now, those are things that are important, like improve, like Jesus changes our behavior, and we go to church to be fed and to worship and all of those things. But those things and those things alone do not save you from your separation from God. The picture of, of salvation is this man falling at Jesus and saying, have mercy on me. It's a picture. Jesus told a, t- a parable that perfectly demonstrated this. He said there was these two men. One of them was a religious leader, and one of them was a tax collector scorned by his society. And they both go to the, 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 the temple. And the, the, te- the, 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 the well-educated religious man goes in, and he says, I thank you, God. I thank you that I am not like these sinners. I thank you that you have made me holy. You have made me good. I thank you that my behavior is so good. And then it says this other man comes in and it says he can't even lift up his eyes to God. And he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which one of those do you think walked away justified in God's eyes? Which one went away with God looking at them as righteous? This picture, this is a picture of what it means to fall before Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you to give me a new birth. I need you to give me a new life. I need to be forgiven of my sins. I don't need self-improvement. I need you to rescue me because I am so lost that I cannot rescue myself. That's the condition of humanity that the Bible paints. But then it shows us this good news that there's a Savior who comes right to us to rescue us out of it. And we have to fall at his feet totally dependent on him to receive new life, what the Bible calls the new birth, that he regenerates our hearts by the Holy Spirit and begins to change our desires. He gives us the the desire to turn away from our sin and to turn towards God. And that desire begins to grow and grow in us. In all of our lives, we become conformed to his image. Here's the thing that I want to point out to you about this, um, this story. Jesus fought this man's battle for him. Jesus fought this man's battle for him. That's salvation. That's how someone is born again. That's Jesus has to fight the battle for you against sin and bondage and unbelief and doubt and shame and fear and idolatry. Jesus has to fight the battle for you. And it's what he came into the world to do. Amen? He came to fight a battle for us. And so now we see this picture of transformation. This man, for the first time in who knows how long, the people see, I'm not going to go into the story about the pigs, it's weird, I know, but that's a sermon for another time. But there's a transformation in this man. And he's sitting there, he now has clothes on, and he's in his right mind, he has peace, he's completely transformed, the demons are gone, and he's radically, radically transformed and set free. Jesus brought this man, not just some kind of detached solution from heaven, like a doctor bringing a sick patient a pill. Jesus brought this man himself. And it was in that powerful encounter, face to face with Jesus, where he came, fell at his feet and allowed Jesus to fight the battle for him, that he was set free. Friends, that's a picture of the gospel. That's a picture of salvation, that we come to Jesus and we say, I have nothing to bring to this. You have to be my savior. You have to free me from my sins. There there is no bondage from which an encounter with the person and presence of Jesus Christ cannot rescue you. I want to say that again. There is no bondage from which an encounter with the person and presence of Jesus cannot rescue you. 
And there's a lie that we often believe that says, my situation is unique. I'm not ready for that yet. I can't do that yet. My situation is not like the others. Jesus, it's going to be a while before I can get cleaned up to find this freedom. Do not believe that lie. Do not believe that, that, that Jesus cannot rescue you out of whatever it is. Whether it's an addiction, whether it's immorality, whether it is uh, unbelief, whether it is uh, de depression and discouragement, your situation is not unique. The Lord knows. The Lord has set people free who are struggling with what you struggle with in His power and His strength. And so whatever your bondage, whatever the depths of your sin, you don't need instructions on how to get better. You need an encounter with Jesus. <laughs> That's what people need. Now notice the man's response. I love this. This says everything. He doesn't get up and go, I know how to be a good person now. I know how to go to church. This is what it says. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. That's transformation. He's not drawn to a church or a synagogue or a religious group or a set of teachings. He begs to be with Jesus. And you will know that you are born again of the Spirit, that your sins have been washed away and that the work of the Holy Spirit has taken hold of your heart because you want Jesus. You want to be close to Him. You know Him personally as your friend and Savior. That's what it means to know Him. I love that. I love that picture. His, his response implies, Jesus, you are everything. Your presence has changed me. I want to be with you always. Jesus said this, this is eternal life, that they would know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That they would have personal knowledge and intimacy with you, Father, and with me. I heard this quote recently that, that just rocked me. And it was this, God made you to love you. God made you to love you. Before God um, was a creator and he created things, he was a father for all of eternity to his eternal son. And at the core of who God is is a father. And he created you not, to, not primarily for you to perform for him. Not for you to work your way into being a Christian or a good churchgoer. He created you to love you and have mutual fellowship with you and intimacy with you. And out of that, out of that comes a life of obedience and holiness and surrender and power and authority. God made you to love you. What a reminder that, of that that we see in this story. Jesus didn't go over there and say, man, there's a guy who's just not obeying me. I need to set him straight. He said, there's a captive and I love him and I want to go set him free. And he's going to fall in love with me and want nothing more than to live his life in my presence. But Jesus doesn't allow him to. He sends him back to proclaim what God has done for him. He sends him back. He says, look, you need to go back because the, the Decapolis, that means ten cities. So this man was from this region at the southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee of ten cities. 
And it said that he went back into those 10 cities and it said that he began to tell what Jesus had done for him. And the word in the Greek, kerousein, it's the same word used when it says that Jesus or the apostles proclaimed the gospel publicly. So this man goes and he becomes a herald. It's like to be a public um, herald of, or a pro, uh, of proclamation of something. And this man went and he couldn't help but to proclaim what G, who Jesus was and what he had done for him in setting him free. And it says that all the people of these cities were amazed. And when you fast forward a couple chapters in Mark and Jesus goes back to the Decapolis, you know what the first thing that happens? A crowd of people come to him and they say, these people need healing. So they know about him now. It's incredible. It's incredible. And he does amazing works there and people come to know him because of this one man's testimony. But here's what I want to close with today. Here's what I want to close with today. Why Jesus is our only hope for rescue. It's because he's the only one who can do anything about our captivity because he fought the battle for us on Calvary when he died on the cross. And he still fights the battle for us. The, the predicament that humanity is in is that we're, as we said, we're enslaved to sin because of our alienation from God. And our relationship with our Father is broken. And two things come together on the cross, and that is that God's anger towards our sin, which the Bible is very clear about, God is holy, and his position towards sin is wrath and judgment. And, it, and it's because he's holy and just, he has to deal with sin and immorality. And his position towards it is set, settled. It's like a cancer on his children that he is set against. Okay? So God has anger against sin in our rebellion, no doubt. However, God, his mercy and compassion are provoked by our lostness. Even in our rebellion against him, his heart is provoked with mercy and compassion towards us. And on the cross of Jesus Christ, God's anger and judgment towards sin come together with his love and his compassion for lost people. And it's all dealt with on the cross because Jesus takes the punishment. Jesus, Jesus bears the wrath in indignation against sin. Exhaustively, completely holy. So that sin that you commit tomorrow morning when you wake up, it's already been paid for. And the sin that you walked in this last week and kept falling into, it's been paid for. And there's a way out of it because there's forgiveness and there's the grace and the empowerment to overcome it because of what happened there at Calvary. Amen? Hallelujah. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. There's only one way that this contradiction can be removed through the cross of Christ, which reveals the severity of God's anger against sin and the depth of his compassion in paying its penalty through the vicarious sacrifice of his son. Not my original words, someone else, but I think that's so beautiful. Salvation and healing, friends, come from an encounter with the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And whether it's that we, we haven't entered into a personal relationship with Jesus yet. We haven't found ourselves falling at his feet and saying, cleanse me of my sin. I believe that God raised you from the dead. I want, to, I want to want to be with you all of my life and for all of eternity. Whether it's that or whether we have done that, but we're stuck in a pattern of bondage and captivity that we need to get out of as believers, the Lord's compassion and his mercy are towards you. And he wants to set you free. It's what he came to do. Amen. Let's stand together and
do what is only appropriate at this point, which is to respond to our King and our Shepherd and our Savior with worship.